Great. A very uh, good morning to all of you. Uh, my name is Caleb, and it's really, it's a privilege to be sharing God's Word with us. I love preaching God's Word to the family and discovering what God has to say to us together. And actually, today we land a, a mini-series that we started five weeks ago um, through the book of Mark, or just chapter one, actually. And, and the, the, the name of the series we've been in is Good News at Last, looking at Mark chapter 1, and today we actually close this series, but we started this series um, because we wanted to start the year focusing on Jesus. We wanted to start the year learning about who Jesus is and what He did on earth and how to follow His ways. And as Jeff mentioned, next week is Fill the City Vision Sunday, but the week after that, we're actually picking up Mark, the book of Mark again, looking at chapter 2, and we're taking off a sub-series called The Inside Out Kingdom. So that's where we headed. And then maybe just to say, last week um, we looked at verses 35 to 37, um, and Ryan spoke to us, and we, we, we saw how Jesus actually slowed down his life. He slowed down his schedule to spend time with his Father. Silence, solitude, prayer. That's what Ryan spoke to us about last week. And uh, he mentioned this book by John Marcoma called uh, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in this book, Mark, John Marcoma talks about this thing called hurry sickness, something that actually most of us in the room can probably relate to. And it's, it's the sickness in our culture of hurry and speed and how that's actually hindering us in our discipleship and in our intimacy with God. It's a sickness that if we're not careful, could stop us as the church from practicing the way of Jesus with the people of Jesus. And speaking about hurry sickness, I've got to share the story, even though it's not completely related. But how many of you have gone here, have gone before for a vitamin B injection? Show of hands. Vitamin B injection. Okay, a whole bunch of you. How many of you go every week for a vitamin B injection? A few of you, okay. How many of you ever gone for a vitamin B injection? And mid-process, the building's alarm system, fire alarm system, starts to go off, and you have your elderly, your elderly nurse look at you in the eyes and say, we got to do this. That happened to me a few weeks ago, and um, it was quite a funny story. Um, the alarm started going off, and, and the nurse was pulling you know, the, the liquid out with her syringe. She's like, pull your pants down, because you know you've got to give it in the butt, and the alarm's going off, and as she pulls, and if you know anything about vitamin B injections, you've got to relax your legs. As I pull my pants down, she's about to stick me. The, the store manager comes barging through the door. You've got to get out of here. I tense up. She stares me, and they basically carry me out of the shop. Limping, in pain, and half crying, half laughing. All that to say, hurry sickness can be very dangerous. And so if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, please do yourself a favor. Grab a cup of coffee in the cafe, sit with a notepad and a pen, and listen to what Ryan shared. It was genuinely profound, and it genuinely will shape your faith and your walk with Jesus. But here's the challenge if you were here last week. My plea to you is if you were here last week and you heard Ryan speak, Go and buy yourself the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I think it's probably going to be the book that is probably most challenging, but will be the most life-changing. Um, and it'll be the book probably that has those two elements in it for this decade. And so please do go and read it. That's my challenge to you. 
Today we're picking up in verse 38, um, and Jesus has just come out of spending time with his father. He's been in silence and solitude and prayer. He's been with his father in the early morning, um, and he's been speaking to his father in heaven. And then from verse 38 to 45, um, Jesus goes out into his day. And so we see from Jesus what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus out of a, an overflow of intimacy with God. See, Jesus shows us in our text today what it looks like to have your entire life and your entire day shaped by the presence and the will of God. And just notice the order in our text from Jesus. Our living for God flows out of our time spent with God. Our, our living for God, everything we do for God, it flows out of our intimacy with God. And this is one of the biggest mistakes Christians and the church make because we so often get the order wrong. We, we try to live out the ways of Jesus so that we can feel close to Jesus and, and get more of his love. We think that the more we serve God or the more we obey God or the more we come to church, then the closer we'll get to God and the, the more of God's love we'll feel and experience but actually, that sort of Christianity, that just leads to moralism. It, it, leads, it leads to a life of burnt out dynamic with regards to your relationship with God. It leaves you tired. It leaves you weary. It, it leaves you short. Instead, Jesus shows us a better way. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're still exploring the claims of Jesus. And maybe you've heard this message too that the more you do for God, you know, the more you obey God or the more you come to church, the more of God's love you can get or the more close you can feel to God. Today, Jesus shows us that the starting point for living for God is being with God. The starting point is intimacy with our Father. And really, that's my big idea for us today. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three ways. Three ways of Jesus that flow out of intimacy with God. And obviously there's many more, but um, we're gonna look at the three that come up in our text today. And so as we grow in our personal relationship with God, as we read God's word and as we pray and as we do that in our personal time, in our corporate time, this is what will follow. So let's read um, from verse 38 to find the first way of Jesus. Actually, let's read from verse 35 just to give you some context. So Mark's, Mark writes, he says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also, because that's why I've come. The first way of Jesus that flows out of intimacy, out of your personal relationship with God, is that you begin to choose eternal glory over earthly glory. See, Jesus is busy spending time with his Father. He's in prayer. He's in solitude. I mean, the Holy Spirit is speaking back to him. There's quality time here. And then his disciples pitch up on the scene. And, and if you know anything about the disciples that Jesus, 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 Jesus chose, 
These guys were no-name fishermen. And for the first time, they're getting their first taste of kind of celebrityhood. The guy they're following, he's becoming popular. He's drawing crowds and applause. He's doing the right things. People want more of him. And so there's a real opportunity. I mean, this is like best case scenario for any startup movement. I mean, you can imagine the disciples kind of visualizing where this thing could go. I mean, Jesus could build a mega church. He could take over the religious world as we know it. Much earthly glory awaits us. And so Jesus' disciples find him and say, Rabbi, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus replies and says this, let's go somewhere else. Let's go somewhere else so that I can preach there too. See, Jesus is not taken in by the pressure of his followers. He's not shaken or swayed because suddenly there's this earthly opportunity that lies before him. Out of time spent with his father, his mind is focused. He's focused on his father's will. His father's will is all that matters. And so Jesus looks the opportunity straight in the eyes. And he says to his disciples, let's go somewhere else. Because that's why I've come. I've come to go to preach to the people. See, Jesus, he knew his mission. And he wasn't going to be distracted by the trappings of fame and fortune and popularity and success. He he wasn't going to be sucked into building this great earthly empire. He didn't have his eyes on earthly glories. Instead, he had his eyes on eternal glory. And for you and me, this is a completely countercultural way of living. I mean, the water that we swim in is one of pursuing earthly glory. And I'm not necessarily talking about the desire to become famous and popular necessarily. I'm talking about the glories that, that actually we experience in our everyday lives. Glories that consume our energy and our time and our focus and our schedule. Like the glory of financial margin and financial security. Or the glory of sending your kids to the popular school. Or the glory of social media and followers and likes. Or the glory of wearing the right clothes and looking the right way. Or the glory of success, just being admired because you're at the top. You are successful. If you want to know what earthly glory is, it's very simple. It's everything that you won't be taking with you into eternity. Earthly glory is everything that is not going to be going with you into eternity. See, we're so focused on pursuing earthly glory that we so quickly forget about eternity. And I've got an illustration for us this morning that I think is going to kind of show show you what I mean. So I've got a rope here on stage. You can see it. It's nice and long. It goes to the end of the stage. And I want you to imagine that this rope goes on forever. It just keeps going. This rope represents your existence. And this black part here, the start of the rope, this black part represents your time on earth. And for some of us, all we think about is this little black part here. We think to ourselves, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a good education. And then over here, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to work it. I'm going to save. I'm going to be smart. So that over here, it's travel. Greece. Yes. Travel, safety, financial security, 
and we worry about everything we eat and, and, and making sure that we look good and, and that we wear the right things. And those things can be good, but so often they become ultimate. And I think to myself, what about the rest of the rope? What about eternity? What about the millions and millions and millions of years beyond this life? See, the Bible teaches that what we do in this little black part here will determine the rest of our lives. Eternity. See, people look at Christians' lives sometimes and they say, you guys are crazy. You're crazy to make that decision here. Don't you know that that decision here, you know, giving to the church or, or giving time or selling your house or whatever you're doing for God to build his glory. Don't you know that that decision is going to impact you? Yeah, you guys are crazy. And I look at the world and I say, you guys are crazy because don't you know that all the decisions you make here are going to impact all of this? Look at the way that so many of, of the world lives and so many even of us. We live actually for earthly glory. We're consumed by this little black part. And I'll be the first to say this morning that I get this more wrong in my life than I get it right. You see, I'm a very ambitious guy. If you know me, um, I'm driven. I have goals. I have dreams. And those things are not necessarily bad. But I know that for me, they often are bad. They often are sinful because it means that most of my life, if you look at my calendar, if you look at my to-do list, I center my life around building and experiencing more earthly glory. Most of my life thinks about how can I build Caleb's kingdom? That's my life. And I very rarely actually think about how can I build God's kingdom? How can I build eternal glory? See, Jesus, he's coming out of a place of spending time with his father. And because he spent time with his father, he's able to deny earthly glory. And he's able to say yes to eternal glory. This is key. The key is he spent time in his father's presence. I know that for me, when I spend time in God's presence, and believe me, it's not perfect. I don't have a quiet time every day. But when I spend time with God's presence, when I spend time in God's presence, it's either during or after that moment that I am able to think more clearly and see more clearly. And I, it feels like in that moment or that kind of snippet of my life, I'm able to see eternity and live for eternal glory more than I otherwise would be. You see, as we spend time with God, He actually begins to reorientate our lives so that it aligns with eternal glory. He reorientates the way, the way we view our time and he, and he reorientates the way we, take, we use our money and he reorientates even your vision for your life. Jesus will come and change that so that it can be aligned to eternal glory. So here's my application question for you this morning and we've got a question for each of my three points. This first question, what parts of your life are more aligned toward earthly glory than eternal glory? What parts of your life at the moment are actually more aligned toward earthly glory, toward that little black part, than eternal glory? And what are you gonna do about it? See, Jesus chose eternal glory over earthly glory. 
This is the first way of Jesus that flows out of intimacy with God. The next way is found in verse 39. So let's read it together. Mark writes, he says, So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Second way of Jesus that flows out of intimacy with God is that we begin to move towards others. Mark tells us that once Jesus has resolved his commitment to eternal glory, he then goes on and he goes from town to town and he preaches to the people and he meets the people. I mean, everything about God's saving actions that we see in the scriptures points to a God who meets us where we're at, points to a God who comes to us. And even Jesus' mission on earth, it practically demonstrates this. It says Jesus left the crowds and he headed into new territory to reach new people. Jesus even says in verse 38, that's why I've come. And then we read that he goes throughout Galilee preaching. And so Jesus, he comes out of this time spent with his father and he's completely others focused. And so he moves towards those people. And you know, this is actually a quality of God that we already see from the beginning of creation. You open up your Bible in Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. What is God's response? The scriptures say God came to look for them. God walked through the garden and called out to them, where are you? God moves towards them. A few chapters later, we read of Abram. Abram's doing his thing. He's not even serving God. He's not even thinking about God. The next moment, God meets him. He calls Abram. He renames him, and he promises the nations as his inheritance. And then I'm reminded of Moses. Also, a few chapters later, Moses has left his family. He's left his kingdom. He's run away. He's in the desert with a bunch of sheep and goats. Very profound. And what happens? Suddenly, God reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. God moves towards his people. God calls his people. See, as you read the Bible, a pattern begins to emerge, and that pattern is one of God moving towards us before we're even able to move towards him. And, you know, we see the culmination of this, the very pinnacle of this we see in Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, leaves his throne in heaven. He leaves his Father, he leaves the Spirit, and he comes down to earth as the God-man. And he's sent to reach people for God with the good news, with the message of salvation. And so what does he do? He goes. He goes into the world. He goes to the people. I'm reminded of this just incredible parable that Jesus once told. He's talking to a bunch of people, and he tells them that um, there was a shepherd once, and the shepherd had 100 sheep. Um, all the sheep were great and healthy and ba-ba, ba black sheep. Um, and, but then one day, one of these sheep went missing. And, and Jesus says, what did the shepherd do? The, the scriptures say that the shepherd left the 99 healthy sheep to go after the one lost sheep. Jesus goes to fetch that one lost sheep. Isn't this just, it's an incredible insight into what Jesus is like. We've got the almighty son of God walking from village to village, reaching the lost, reaching those that are in spiritual need, healing, loving. So what does this mean for you and I today? 
it means that as we spend time in God's presence, we actually also begin to move towards others with the message of good news. We begin to practice the way of Jesus. I mean, that's why we as a church, we plant congregations. We planted M5. We, we create new gospel access points. It's, it's why we as a church would consider all of us to be modern day missionaries, not into China, into Cape Town. It's why we use our workspaces and our homes as spaces to reach our friends with the good news and the gospel. You're going to hear more about this next week when we speak and share the full the city vision and what's been happening. It's incredible stuff. So my application question for you on this point this morning is this. Who are you moving towards with the good news? Who are you moving towards with a message of good news? Do you have someone in your life at the moment, someone you're either praying for, someone at work that doesn't follow Jesus that you're befriending, just getting to know them, someone that uh, you're inviting to church? Who are you currently moving towards with the good news? See, this is a countercultural way of living because we live in this individualistic, go at it alone culture, every man for himself. I mean, no one even has time for other people because they're all in a hurry. Or we don't have the mental capacity to remember to move towards that person because all of our mental capacity is spent on trying to make sure we are attaining or pursuing earthly glory. But when we spend time in our Father's presence, we actually start to become aligned to His will. We start to become aligned to His heart. And as we grow deeper in our personal relationships with God, we become like Him. And so we become like Him in that we move towards others. Jesus shows us that practicing the way of Jesus, it actually starts with intimacy with the Father. Before we end this point, let me just say, if you're here this morning and, and you personally, you just feel far from God or maybe you've never committed your life to Jesus, God is moving towards you right now. He knows what's in your heart. He, he knows the burdens you're carrying. He knows the worries. He knows the questions. And He's moving towards you. He's not forcing His way into your life. He wouldn't do that. But He's inviting you into a life-changing friendship with Him. Out of an overflow of intimacy with God, as the church, we begin to choose eternal glory over earthly glory. We begin to move towards others, move towards our city. And the third way of Jesus that flows from intimacy with God is found in our final verses. So let's read from verses 40 to 45. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And, and Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. The third way of Jesus that flows from a personal intimacy, a personal relation with God, is that we begin to overflow with compassion. 
the church begins to overflow with compassion. You see, while Jesus doesn't allow him to be distracted, uh, doesn't allow himself to be distracted on the mission, he does allow himself to become interrupted in the name of compassion. And, and to really understand the significance of this story, you've got to understand leprosy and you've got to understand what it would have meant for someone to have leprosy in the time of Jesus. So the word leprosy in, in Israel is actually a generic term for any kind of serious skin disease. But of the different leprosies, the worst one was known as Hansen's disease. That's what we actually call it today. And Luke, who, is, uh, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also gives an account of the same story. And he says that the man was full of leprosy, which Bible scholars will say is confirmation that this man had Hansen's disease, the worst type of skin disease. Now, most people, with, uh, that when they think of leprosy, you kind of think of a person with kind of sores all over their body, and it's kind of oozing, but um, it's not actually the case with Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease has a very different um, dynamic with regards to its effect on a person and their body. See, Hansen's disease, it destroys uh, the body's warning system of pain. So essentially, it acts as an anesthetic which brings numbness to your body's extremities, ears, nose, eyes. Um, and so the damage and the deformities that follow that actually come from incidences like putting your hand into a fire for too long and not knowing that your hand is burning, or washing your face with boiling water. Um, there's even accounts of people with Hansen's disease waking up with fingers missing because rats ate them off during the night and they didn't feel them. And so this continuous damage to the extremities causes horrible physical deformities. Um, but for this man, his worst pains weren't even that of, of, of it being physical because obviously the pain disappears over time as the disease progresses. Instead, his worst miseries were that of the societal and the religious implications. You see, if, um, if you had leprosy, you were legally, you were isolated from society so that you would not contaminate anyone else in the community. It was a lot like the coronavirus actually with regards to the level of fear and the level of quarantine required to keep this disease under control. And so lepers were confined to outside the city limits, and many times to the city dump because that's where they could find food. And so what this, what this meant was people with leprosy, with the Hansen's disease, experienced intense rejection and intense loneliness, and terrible living conditions. It also meant that they were cut off from their family. They were cut off from their friends. Their only companions were the others with the same disease. And then things got even worse for if you had Hansen's disease. There's also religious implications. You see, Moses stated that leprosy was actually uh, the, the physical equivalent of spiritual sin. And you can go read about it in Leviticus 13. But Leviticus 13 states that if anyone came close to a leper, that leper would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that that person would not become themselves contaminated and so become ceremonially unclean. And so it meant that if you had Hansen's disease, if you were a leper, you were cut off from the people of God and you were cut off from God himself. You were cut off from the feasts of Israel, from the religious activities. And then to make matters even worse, leprosy was incurable. 
It was a life sentence of hell on earth. And so really, this man genuinely could say he had nothing to look forward to. He literally had no hope and he had no future. The only thing he could look forward to was death. And so with nothing to lose, he comes to Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? We see that Jesus looks at, his, at the man and his heart is filled with compassion. Verse 41 actually says, Jesus was filled with compassion. So he looks at the man who's faced physical pain. He's faced hopelessness. He's faced rejection. He's faced isolation, probably depression. He's faced poverty, hurt, spiritual rejection. And how does Jesus respond? His first response is that his heart wells up with compassion. And let me just say to those of you this morning that can relate to any of those sort of feelings. If you're here this morning and you're carrying a burden, if you're here this morning and there's worry on your mind, if you're here this morning and you're in financial trouble or pain, physical pain, or you're, you're in a, a season of suffering, Jesus, if he was standing here right now this morning, he would look at you and the first thing he'd, he'd do is his heart would be filled with compassion for you, deep compassion. But for Jesus, it doesn't just end with the feeling of compassion. What Jesus does next is astounding because actually Jesus doesn't heal the man next, interestingly. He doesn't uh, ask the man questions and he, he doesn't you know, give the man rules to follow. Verse 41 tells us that he reached out his hand and he touches the man. I mean, in the most incredible act of love and compassion, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches this man before he even heals him. And you know, we know that he didn't, you know, like barely touch him. You know, like a little girl would be reluctant to touch a slimy slug. And we know that that's the case because the Greek word for touched in this passage is often also translated to take hold of or to embrace. Why is this significant? It's significant because no one in that nation, not a single person touched a leper, but Jesus did. No one touched a leper because it was religiously forbidden, it was societal taboo, you could risk infection. But Jesus, out of compassion and love, he steps forward and he touches the untouchable. And not only, and only then does he heal this man physically. Verse 42 tells us that Jesus said to the man, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. It's this incredible testimony of the, the power and the supremacy of Jesus over our physical world. You see, as Jesus spent time with his father, he had focus and he had mission but he allowed himself to be interrupted in the name of compassion because that was the Father's will. Out of intimacy with the Father, Jesus is able to slow down his life. He's able to slow down his schedule. He's able to put some margin in there and he's able to respond to this man in love. And so here's my application question for you this morning. It's a challenging one. What fills your heart with compassion and how is God calling you to respond? What, what do you cry over in your life? What breaks your heart? What, when you look at it, fills your heart with compassion? 
And how is God calling you to respond to that this morning? See, these ways we've looked at this morning, they can only flow from intimacy with God. You know, as we spend time in God's presence and as we pray and as we read His Word and as we allow His Word to shape our lives, this intimacy leads us to live in the way of Jesus. And we have to get the order right. We have to get the order right. We don't live out the ways of Jesus so that we can feel close to God. We don't do things for God so that we can get his love. Remember, that's only gonna leave you burnt out on religion. This morning, Jesus shows us a much better way. He shows us that the starting point for living in the way of Jesus is actually intimacy with him. It's intimacy with God. And I love the promise of James chapter four, verse eight. James simply says this, he says, draw near to God and the promises and he'll draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And really that's our response. There's a whole bunch of application questions on the screen, but what is our primary response? To draw near to God, to be intimate with our father, to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But our story is not over. Because Jesus actually did even more than heal this man physically. And if you read verse 43 to 44, you actually get insight into the fullness of what Jesus did for this man. Let's read verse 43 to 44. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. See, Jesus doesn't only touch him and he doesn't only heal him physically. He does much more than that. Jesus makes this man spiritually clean. Remember leprosy in Bible times? It was seen as a a physical equivalent to the spiritual problem of sin. That's why when a leper is healed, it's not called healing. It's called cleansing. Jesus says in verse 41, be clean. And so Jesus gives this leper more than you could imagine. He gives him a new life in God. He makes him spiritually clean. Remember, this guy was once rejected. He was once isolated. He was unable to to commune with the people of God and he was unable to be with God himself. Now Jesus has made him spiritually clean and reconciled him to God. See, the God of the Bible, he's he's not a God who only moves towards the people that are getting it right. And he's not only a God who, who has time for the people um, that are making effort. The God of the Bible is the God who enters the mess and the brokenness of our world to touch the untouchable. That's the God we serve. He, he moves toward the lost and the broken and the needy. He, he forgives the people that are stuck in their sin and, and stuck in shame and guilt. And he reconciles these people, you and I. He reconciles us to himself. You see, through Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins so that we can have intimacy with God. Through Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins so that we can have intimacy with God. I love the way Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God. Who does it? Not you and me. 
all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. You know, I'm not even surprised that the leper didn't follow Jesus' instructions. Jesus was like, you know, please don't go tell anyone about this. I'm not surprised that he, he didn't listen to Jesus because it would, have been, it would have been news too good not to share. And, you know, it wasn't just life-changing news. This was eternity-shaping news. It was, for this man, good news at last. I'm going to invite the band to come up. See, the story of, of Jesus with the leper is just this powerful story for you and I to reflect on as we come to the communion table this morning. It's a story that reveals the very heart of who God is, but even more than that, it's also a story that actually holds many parallels between us and the leper. See, for those who experience loneliness like the leper did, you don't have friends or you don't have anyone to lean on, Jesus moves towards you. Jesus has love for you. For those that are deep in sin, your life is a mess. Maybe you're struggling with some sort of secret sin that no one knows about or there's sexual sin in your life, or there's just a series of bad decisions that have just resulted in you being filled with guilt and shame. Jesus embraces you. He literally embraces you this morning, and he forgives you. Jesus has a new life for you. If you're broken physically or emotionally, Jesus wants to touch you and heal you this morning. If you're spiritually numb, you're kind of holding on to the practices of Jesus and you come into church, but in your heart, it's all, you don't even know what it means anymore. It feels numb. Jesus this morning wants you to feel his love. And if you're a mess, Jesus can handle it. Can I ask you to stand with me? reminded of the story of the prodigal son, the story of the son that kind of ran away from his father and proverbially kind of, you know, said to his dad, stuff you, I'm going on my own way. And, and, and ultimately he comes right back around and he comes back to his father and his father's sitting on the porch and he sees his son a long way off coming home. And what does his father do? His father gets up and runs toward his son. And when he gets to his son, he does a simple thing. He embraces his son. He embraces his son. Can I invite you to close your eyes for me? If any of this morning has spoken to you, there's, whether it's loneliness, whether it's just being deep in sin, or just feeling broken this morning, or, or spiritually numb, or even if you would consider your life a mess, I want to invite you to respond in a very simple gesture. If, if any of this morning is speaking to you, would you mind just opening your hands as a, as a sign of receiving? You don't have to put your hand up. Just open your hands right in front of you as a way of saying to God, I, this is me. I need you this morning. And I've got a very simple prayer that I'm going to pray over us as we receive. Father, I pray that in the same way that the Father ran to his son and embraced him. Won't you come to us this morning and embrace us with your love?
come and embrace us with your love. As we stand in response and, and open our hands in surrender. Holy Spirit, come. Embrace us with your love. Let, let our dryness be replaced with experience. Let sin be replaced with love. Let rejection be replaced with acceptance. As we stand here, Holy Spirit, come. going to continue responding in a very practical way. We're doing, we have communion this morning and in a moment I'm going to invite you to come and collect the elements to take them back to your seat and you're going to engage with God on your own this morning. But here's the picture I'd like you to keep in mind. The leper came to Jesus and Jesus touched him. He healed him physically and he made him spiritually clean. We come to the table this morning. We come to Jesus. And he does the same for us. We're coming to him in surrender.